On this episode, we're chatting with Alex O'Byrne, founder and managing director at We Make Websites. Alex's experience in founding and scaling an agency with more than five office locations lends itself perfectly to a discussion about taking a merchant store international. While the concept may seem simple, Alex shares his perspective on each of the major challenges to selling products in a different region of the world. We tackle currency, shipping, taxes, language translation, and more, and specific ways to overcome each obstacle so selling internationally can be as smooth as possible. Once we lay out all the blockers, we start breaking them down so your brand can have a clear roadmap for how to reach your goals. So let's get started. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chase. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about We Make Websites. Okay, so I am Alex. I am the founder and now managing director of We Make Websites, which is a big Shopify Plus agency. So we help some of the bigger or faster growing brands on Shopify Plus really get the most out of it. Start off in London. Um, I now live in the US, in Miami. We have offices in, uh, well, here in New York, in London, in Toronto, Vancouver, um, LA, Montreal, so all spread out all over the place. And um, the reason I say managing director now is we're actually part of Born Group, which is a much bigger agency now, which is part of Tech Mahindra. So that happened last year. So we make has gone to the next level and um, still servicing the same brands and just providing a superior level of service. So that is uh, the company. And then, yeah, my background, I was originally a developer, started the company about 10 years ago, building Shopify sites for all sorts of brands. And if it's being done on Shopify or can be done on Shopify or even can't be done on Shopify, we've normally done it at some point. Love to hear it. And so many offices. That's pretty impressive being all over the world. Yeah. So and Yeah. It's right on topic for what we're going to dig into today, which is internationalization. So a lot of what we're going to talk through is how to take your store from essentially one region to multiple. Um, I think that you have a really cool story at we make of how you kind of started in London. You were looking at kind of growing the business, was unsure how to do it. And you're kind of thinking, do we add more services? Do we have more locations? It's kind of a, an interesting parallel of how international, internationalization works in the first place. Mm. Um, so I uh, want to kind of quickly tell that story of, of how we make has grown and kind of how you started to go international yourselves. Yeah, so we've been uh, building Shopify stores in London for for years. The company started two thousand nine, but I'd say we really got serious like twenty thirteen. So for about five years, we were growing as one of the the predominant European and UK Shopify agencies, and we were trying to figure out how to increase our revenue as an agency and grow. And we we came up with two options. One of them was add new services, so start doing something new, like for us that might be like digital marketing, for example or whether we should do the same thing, but elsewhere. So we decided that we would um, expand internationally. And we had a short list of places around the world and decided that New York would be the easiest, let's say. I don't know if I would call it easy in hindsight, but certainly the easiest uh, of the list. <laughs> sure. um, so I came out to the US in 2018 and really just started from nothing. I remember walking around New York just thinking, I don't know how we're ever going to do this. Um, but pretty quickly, we got a really solid team in place, um, which is all an agency is, just people. So we found the right people. Luckily, we already had some clients there, and we just that just kind of snowballed. And our US team has grown hugely. And like I say, it was quite a big team in Canada now. So um, that's our tale of internationalization. And um, so I could definitely relate to some of the, the stresses of expanding internationally, but it's been worth it for us in the long run. So 
Um, yeah, we and, and actually that's where our international expertise we, real, we realized was so valuable because being part of Europe, as we were then, UK anyway, in 2016, um, we um, always had this idea of like selling multiple currencies and multiple languages front of mind. And I found when I came to the US, that was less common just because the size of the market is just enormous. And you can sell in US dollars and in English and not really worry about it for a long time. Um, but at the top end, the brands are wanting to expand internationally and do it op uh, optimally. So localization, so that they're getting higher conversions in those markets and better customer experiences. So um, that's what we do. It's one of the the biggest turnoffs, I think, is when you hit a landing page for whatever reason, and it says, you know, I'm obviously in the U.S. and it says, oh, you know, buy this thing in pounds. And you're like, well, I I don't know how to convert that. I don't know how that works. What's going to happen here in the back end? Yep. So I think it's it's a super important detail that's often overlooked if you are going in, into different markets. So let's let's start from the very beginning before we get into all the details here. Why go international? What's the overall value? So the big one is revenue growth, that you're tapping into a new market with something that presumably you've got some traction with in another market. And if the market is similar, you would expect that it's quite an easy win um, to be able to, to, to be in those markets and generate revenue that way. So that's the big one. Um, you also get access to new wholesale and retail opportunities. So if you enter a new market and then you can go to the distributors in those countries and say, actually, we've already got some traction, there's clearly demand, that can be a good way of expanding um, as a brand. And then I still think as well that there is a lot of prestige associated with being international. So especially in industries like fashion. And um, we actually found that in our case, actually, that being in London and New York is quite common for businesses. So the fact that we were also there was worked in our favor. Um, but I think as a, as a um, online brand selling, um, um, selling goods online, you also get a similar effect of, uh, so it's like brand positioning, I suppose is what I'm saying. Totally. I think fashion is a perfect example of a vertical that works really well for that. You know, if you look at brands that sell products outside of just the US or outside of just one country, really, if you can kind of position yourself as like, we're an international brand and we sell in, in Europe and we sell in Asia and we sell in the United States, it's a lot bigger of a feel than just, oh yeah, we're a United States brand. So I think that's that's an interesting one that might not have a direct line to revenue or growth or anything like that, but it's the prestige is an interesting bullet point there. So let's hop into some challenges. I think that's kind of the big focus of this podcast today of what we're going to talk through. Um, it's very easy to just say, yes, we're going to go international and that's a buzzword and everyone's talking about it. But there's a lot of, uh, of kind of factors that may inhibit a brand from going international. So um, toss one out. Let's kind of talk through it. Let's maybe do like a pro and con of why it is something that you actually may want to tackle and maybe a way that we can kind of overcome that, that challenge. Yeah. So, so you mentioned currency already, and that is number one, that it, it, it is hard in so many ways to sell in different currencies. So there's a few ways of solving this. The most basic is you just show an indication of price. Uh, on the front end of a site, the customer still checks out in the store's currency, like your currency as a business, but at least they kind of have an idea um, of what it's going to cost. Not the best, but it's quite a, a quick way of, of at least having a bit more of an international friendly store. Getting more advanced, um, you can allow the customer to check out in their own currency. So um, some of the features in Recharge and in Shopify allow you to do that with a single store. So you can actually let people check out in different currencies. Um, that's great, very slick. 
But the main downside there is you're not in full control of pricing because you're just using the FX rate, um, which you might need to be able to say, actually, this, this product is $20 in the US, but it's um, 18 pounds in the UK and, and have that level of control rather than letting it be dictated by the FX rate. Um, and the other thing is, if you've got a single store, you're not able to merchandise locally, which isn't exactly a currency problem, but it's something that you might want to do later on. So the more advanced version or most advanced version is you have a multi-store architecture. So you have a store for each region. So you often see that on, on stores, including Shopify, when it's like uk.brand.com or us.brand.com. And that means you've got actual separate stores that are all configured differently. So they'll probably connect to different checkouts, processing the local currency. So in, in that example, US dollars and uh, British sterling. Um, and it also allows you to actually merchandise differently. And if, and if the countries are um, different languages, then they can also, you can also set up each store to have a different language too. So um, the way you set up your currency does affect a lot of the other things as well. So those are the three levels. So indicative price, charge uh, in the customer's local price if you can. And then the, the top level is actually being able to set a price in different regional stores. Um, just on the final one, the, the reason a lot of brands end up doing that, especially if they have wholesale agreements, is they've got to be able to say exactly what they're selling the product for. So if it's fluctuating each day because you're just using an FX rate, but you've got wholesale agreements with retailers in those countries, they might get a bit upset if your product starts going below what they're charging in the store. So the multi-region approach is what we've been doing for most of our brands, I'd say. And I think that kind of goes against one of the main value drivers of subscriptions in the first place, which is being able to kind of project your income or project your revenue over the period of months and quarters and years, whatever that is, just because you know people are going to be subscribing. So if that price is constantly fluctuating, it's going to be really hard to project that revenue out and figure yeah. out what's going to happen in a few months. Actually, that's a really good point. So FX rate, so the, the, um, the rates that you get between currencies. Um, FX rate risk is something that is definitely very real with this. And it doesn't matter how you do it, you're going to have the, the risk somewhere. So in the case where um, you're just letting um, the checkout determine the FX rate, it's great, it's simple, um, and, and you are getting the, um, the FX rate on that day, but then that's you're accepting, accepting the risk there. Now, if you're paying for the... Um, the uh, your suppliers in a different currency, then you've got a bit of an FX risk between what you're selling for and uh, and what you're receiving. Um, in the multi-store approach, you might have the various checkouts going into bank accounts underlying that are in those currencies. So you might have a Euro, USD, uh, GBP bank accounts, which is great, but you still have the FX risk, right? That suddenly if one of those currencies tanks, then you've effectively got less money than you did before. Um, so that's definitely a thing. And I don't think there's a, a right answer, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Just one of those things that you know that as you go international, there's going to be risks inherently. And this yeah. is just one of those things that there are ways to kind of mitigate it, but there isn't necessarily, like you said, a right answer, or like this is the best practice for how to do it. Yep, yep. And a lot of it will depend on where your suppliers are and what currencies you're paying for them in and so on. So let's go into, into uh, what I think is going to be your next potential hurdle to get over for, for multi-currency, which is shipping and suppliers. How, how does all of that play out? I know there's a couple kind of different approaches there. Yeah, so shipping and related to that, taxes actually are another extremely, even more sophisticated area. Um, so the most simple way of shipping is you have your distribution center in 
the country you're in and you're just exporting. And that's where most brands start. And then you can work up from there to actually having local fulfillment centers once you have got a decent scale in those markets. Um, and that has a, a lot of ramifications operationally. So for example, if you're shipping from one location, let's say in the US, returns becomes a bit of a headache if you're shipping stuff to Europe and people are, are wanting to return it, there's suddenly a lot of uh, uh, cost there that you're having to think about how, your policy around. Um, Rules around exporting and tariffs and so on um, is a big thing. So also, so if you're shipping from um, the US, let's say, shipping into Europe, you need to be charging um, a, a VAT in those markets, so sales tax, um, and probably some sort of import duty as well. Um, and, and there's a whole topic there called uh, around um, where the, or who, who pays for the taxes. So like, um, do you pay... Do you charge on the checkout your customer for the duties that you're expecting in that market? Or do you just ship it and then the customer basically deals with it on their end and they get a bill from customs for whatever the amount is? And if anyone is sort of old enough on here to remember buying stuff on the internet in the early days, uh, if you bought like a band t-shirt from the US and it arrived, you might get a note from the postman saying, hey, you also owe like $30 to the government, basically. Which is probably so, more than what the product costs in the first place. To, yeah, to exactly, exactly. So so that's generally not the approach that you want to take. And instead, you want to be using some sort of technology and we check out to calculate what it's going to be in that country, price it in, charge customer then, and then you just pay the carrier that fee and they deal with it with the government. Um, so, so that's duties. Tax is slightly different. So like I say, VAT is what you charge going to Europe or in the US, it's sales tax that you pay in different states. Um, and it's a bit like if you, uh, a lot of brands will know by now that um, ever since um, Wayfair versus the state of South Dakota, I think it is, the, the ruling in 2018, which is that you have to pay sales tax in states that you ship into. Um, ever since that ruling, it's become a bit of a headache for e-com brands that have got a, a, a big um, customer base in, in different states. Well, it's a similar thing if you're selling internationally. So if you're shipping a lot of goods to the EU, uh, you're going to be charged, you, ha you have to charge VAT to those customers and then remit that to those governments. So there's definitely an overhead there financially in terms of um, what you need to do to meet compliance. Just a small thing there that could save your audience a lot of time. Um, there is a distinction between how tax is charged in the US and how it's charged pretty much everywhere else in the world. So when you buy something in the US, including in store, the sales tax is added at the checkout, right? Like it's added to the amount. And it's very much like a sort of American way of looking at it. Like that's the government, that's nothing to do with the business. But in certainly in Europe, the sales tax is in the price. So if a, if a product costs a hundred pounds, that includes a 20% VAT in there and the business pays that to the government. So it might be broken out on the checkout so you can see it, but it doesn't alter the actual price of the order. The reason that's important is if you want to be optimized locally, you need to think about what your configuration is. So you might want your US store to be adding the sales tax at the checkout. Um, otherwise, effectively, your customer thinks the thing is more expensive it's going to be. Because if it's $100 here and it gets to the checkout, but, but the store is configured in the EU way, it's still $100. Your customer is thinking, oh, I was expecting to be paying 110 here. Um, so you want your US ones to be adding the tax on, and then you want your international stores to be pricing in the tax um, with the actual purchase. 
So there's a ton there. I want to dig into a, a couple different yeah, things there. Yeah. <laughs> um, most recently, though, and, and I know we're going to touch on this in a little bit, but um, that sounds like there it's just culture difference a little bit. And as you start to sell in different markets, there, there's a huge thing to be looking at is like, how do these customers want to receive this product, want to even view the products? So like you yeah. said, if you're building tax in versus adding tax on at the end, it's just a different cultural thing. It's something I didn't even understand because I don't obviously buy much from the UK, but that's something you have to be aware of as you start to kind of branch out and sell internationally. Yeah, so that very true. So cultural differences and 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 language as well, of course, is is different between different countries, even British English versus US English. Totally. So so on the nuance front, um, I think that comes down to things like um, well, like payments is a good thing. Uh, sorry, tax is a good example, but payments is another one which we can get into in a bit more detail. But um, what payment methods are expected in different countries varies. Um, also, you want to be able to merchandise differently for different regions. So depending on what you sell, presumably there are sales and seasonalities around the year that mean that you might want to merchandise differently. So an extreme example might be if you're selling uh, fashion and you have summer and winter seasons, obviously they're the opposite way around in the Southern Hemisphere. So um, trying to have a different um storefront experience and multi-store experience for each region should help with making sure the site is optimized for each of those regions um language we should talk about a little bit sorry right, right before we get into language i want to interrupt you real quick so you're just talking like fashion's a perfect example like hey here's our new sweatshirt line launching that in an april or may in the united states is thinking this is totally backwards because we're coming into summer i don't need these long sleeve heavy stuff whereas it's the op absolute opposite the other way around that's exactly what southern hemisphere is going to need so yep. it's not just to flip a switch let's turn it on in southern hemisphere let's like you have to essentially rebuild an entire store exactly and there's tons of like, different examples of that like if you've got something that's seasonal around let's say people going to college or whatever you know those dates are different or um or, or national holidays. If it's a, if you sell something that's gifted quite a lot, then sometimes those are slightly different. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. One of the interesting things, so the Black Friday phenomenon is interesting because that used to be a US thing because it's Thanksgiving, the Friday after Thanksgiving, where everyone's right. kind of sat around at home and wanted to buy the Christmas stuff. And it's an interesting sort of anti-example of something being exported and now everyone seems to have Black Friday even countries without Thanksgiving have got Black Friday, like the UK. Um, but yeah, generally having some awareness of what works locally um, is going to be important. I know we're kind of, we're, we're moving pretty quickly. I do want to go back to taxes and shipping really quickly. Yeah. Um, shipping is a, is a really interesting one because I think you you mentioned two, two big pieces there. One of them is just ship internationally from a single shipping center. Uh, the example you gave was shipping in the US over to UK. Um, having local fulfillment centers and doing regional fulfillment centers also presents this other problem, even though that seems like a good answer, because now you just have to manage separate warehouses and separate shipping centers. And you have to determine, okay, if you're ordering from this location, you have to figure out what's the closest shipping center to that. And then you're still looking at international taxes and buying and all that kind of stuff. So it's, I think the theme of this is going to be just kind of understand and be aware of everything that's going on. But is there any way to kind of get around this, like, you know, you might not have to pay customs up front if you're shipping from one location, but now you're managing three or four, potentially even more different shipping centers across the world. Yeah, so it, it's one of those things that even if the technology was perfect, it's still hard, like selling internationally, whichever way you look at it, there's, there's challenges. And I think figuring out the right solutions there, if you're moving stock around the world to different locations, that's quite a, a, 
big thing to manage. Um, and I think a lot of that decision comes down to an optimization once you've proven scale there. So it's probably fine in the early days to be tolerating a slightly higher shipping fee because you're shipping stuff from the US and passing it on to the customer usually. Um, and then as you can see with demand, you might decide to open distribution centers and then ship freight to those distribution centers. And then normally you also get a tax benefit there because you are not importing anymore. Well, you will pay that somewhere else, but you're not paying it at, at the point of purchase. Right. Um, so after Brexit, uh, some UK brands that were a bit bigger started using German distribution centers where they were shipping from the UK before, because even though those distances aren't very big in the scheme of things, it was just uh, way simpler the compliance wise and tax wise to be shipping stuff within Germany, if you like, or within the EU. Um, so yeah, complicated topic. <laughs> Definitely complicated topic. And I think it's worth noting here that this is, this is podcast in this episode and this conversation is, is more to just enlighten people and having them understand what's going on in this world, because it's a lot harder to just jump into this and have this kind of be slapping you in the face and figure out, oh, I didn't even think about all these things. But this is by no means to try to dissuade you from selling internationally. This is just kind of an understanding of these are some of the hard truths and some of the realistic things that you have to deal with if you decide to go international. Um, let's hop back into language now. Let's keep moving forward. Um, any solutions to this kind of like language barrier? Or is it just different stores is kind of what solves that? Uh, different stores is one. You can use Shopify's multilingual API on a single store, and that's getting more and more support from different apps as well. So that is another approach. Um, we, The brands we work with would never be using automation for this. They would be actually going and writing copy in those different regions, maybe using an agency to write copy there because um, for most brands we work with, tone of voice is important, so you can't just sort of translate it willy-nilly. So um, that's the key thing, getting the content in on the store in a way that matches the ethos across different regions. Um, you've also got to think about all the other different uh, touch points, so all the different emails that are going out and um, confirmation pages and all these different parts of the site that a customer sees um, need to be translated too. And customer service needs to be available in those languages as well, which is quite a big thing that to, to find a multilingual customer service team. So I think that's, again, a good example of even if the technology just did it all for you, there's quite a lot that still needs um, doing. So, yeah, we tend to go with a multi-store approach there with a different store for each region. Um, an interesting thing there is how much you can share translations across different regions. So all your English stores should be pulling from the same content and all your sort of Canadian French and uh, uh, French stores could use the same translations potentially. So that gets a bit more into architecture again. It's like how, where is your content stored and how are you syncing that between the different stores? I know we're still kind of right in the meat of this, but this is kind of bringing up an idea that's been kind of buzzwordy in, in e-commerce for a while, which is headless. Is there, is there a way, you know, I don't want to say silver bullet, but is headless an opportunity to where you kind of have all of these different interfaces that you can pull in on, on the back end in one way um, where you're talking like an English store and maybe a British store are using similar levels of English. So you don't necessarily need to totally redo everything there. Yeah. So we've definitely done that. Um, so using in the example I'm thinking of, we had a Shopify store for each currency and then we had a, a Contentful instance that had 
every language in there. So uh, English, UK English, and actually US English, we had as an option if, if the client wanted. Then we had uh, French, German, and all the other languages. And then the headless front end, or the head of the front end, if you like. And maybe we should explain what headless is, really. So headless, <laughs> uh, headless is when the front end of the store is built in a different technology to the back end. So Shopify, a Shopify theme is a, is a monolithic approach where you have the same system rendering the front end to the customer as you're controlling the content in. Whereas with headless, the front end is built in different technology. So it might be more optimal for what you're trying to do. So in this case, what we did was we built a front end that would pull in the translations from Contentful and connect to the inventory and products and, and prices in Shopify. And then the, from that, you could end up with like 20 or 30 different regions based on combinations of languages and currencies and so on, including countries um, like the Netherlands and Canada, where you have two different languages. So you can actually have like both available plus the checkout in the relevant currency. So that is a good example of using headless to deliver a localized experience at scale without having to build a different store every time. Again, no pros and cons, you know, you're building a lot more up front and you have to kind of build those pathways to make sure that everyone understands how you can kind of connect everything on the front. It seems seamless, not to use the same word, but yeah. there's a lot of work that goes into that. And obviously a lot of maintenance with, with a lot of headless builds. Yeah. The project took uh, longer, I would say, than a normal Shopify project, but once it was live to add different regions became a lot quicker. Totally makes sense. Um, and again, just doubling down on this fact that there, there is no one way to do this as you go international. There's obviously a lot of problems, a lot of opportunity as well. Um, but it depends on your brand, depends on your philosophy. Um, I think one of the things you said earlier, tone and voice is so important. And if you kind of neglect any of these pieces, I would even argue on the marketing side, including tone and voice, it starts to feel not very genuine and people start to see through that. And then you start to have some problems. Yeah, I suppose a good way of thinking about it is what got you to where you are in your domestic market? And it's probably a combination of product positioning, a slick customer experience, um, and having a brand that resonates. So all those things are going to need to be done in those local markets to the same or nearly the same degree. With the same type of culture in the home language and home currency and all those kinds of yeah. things, there's just so many levels that kind of overlay this. Yeah. Um, you brought up ship, uh, I'm sorry, not shipping. Uh, you brought up returns and customer service. Um, let's dive into that. Okay. So returns are, are always a bit of a headache logistically, even when you're just in one market, but suddenly you've got the prospect of having to get a customer to ship something internationally back to you. So that is another thing that you can mature once you get to the point of having local distribution, because it's a bit easier for someone to, to, to do that or cheaper anyway. Um, so returns like I say, always fairly difficult. Um, what, was the, what was the other thing, sorry? Uh, customer service. Customer service, yeah. So that I think is one of the hardest things here because a lot of the things I'm talking about are technology architecture choices and they're difficult, but you know, at the end of the day, you just find the thing that works for you and get that set up and running. Customer service in different languages is, is, is an overhead just in terms of staff. And there are companies that can help with that, uh, uh, but I just I just think it means having a very clear strategy for um, 
personnel growth, right? Like it's, it's one thing saying, let's just go and start selling in different market, but eventually you're going to need a, a full plan to kind of back that up and back up the success that you might see in those markets. And that might include like local hires or making sure that there is a budget for producing content in those markets and so on. So um, yeah, I don't have too much to say on that other than to say that it is something to, to keep in mind. Again, it seems like kind of the theme is don't really have any specific suggestions because everything is going to kind of depend on your brand and a lot of what you want to move on, but a lot of things to keep in mind. Yeah. Last, last item on my list here, uh, data protection. And I think just data in general, um, that's obviously the big topic everyone's talking about now. Um, how do you deal with data protection regulations? I mean, it's difficult to do just in the U S just in one place. How do you do that across the world? Yeah. So it's hard and you're probably going to need a lawyer for the markets you want to sell into. <laughs> um, the big one's GDPR, really, that the EU was the, the progressive force here in making clearer data protection laws that apply to its citizens. And the big ones for an e-commerce brand are that you can't just opt people in to your marketing and you can't block services because people haven't opted in, if you see what I mean. So you can't just say, hey, sign up here and uh, get this discount code without getting some sort of opt-in. So in the US, CCPA, which is the California um, Data Protection Act, is, is similar in some ways, but a bit looser. So the customer flow you need to look at, you also need to be able to allow anyone to do what's called a subject access request um, so they can see what you're storing about them and also a right to be forgotten or request to delete, which means anyone can email you and say, I want you to delete everything you've got about me and you've got to be able to do it. So this, all, this has been around for a few years and there's some good solutions now. So for example, Shopify's implementation for all their apps requires that every app has got a GDPR hook. So if someone requests right to be forgotten, that's triggered. Um, but I think marketing flows is the main thing to think about when you're signing into the EU, but you don't want to fall out of compliance there by having some kind of opt-in that isn't allowed. Um, so again, want to get legal advice on, but something that's worth considering when you expand in, uh, internationally. Transfer of data is another one, actually, that um, you have to be a bit careful what you move around where. So definitely want to, again, look into in more detail. Generally, more of an operational one and not something you need too much technology for. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, a challenge. More just one of those checkboxes to make sure that you kind of have eyes on this and you understand what you're working for. Yeah. Gotcha. So so there's, there's obviously a lot of things to take into consider there. Um, I want to kind of take a crawl, walk, run approach and start to ask you, what do you do if you are a brand who's just kind of starting and wants to go international? You know, let's assume you've found product market fit. Let's assume you've done all that research and you think that, you know, whatever XYZ market is a good opportunity to go into. What's like the first one or two thing you need to do just to get off the ground? Yeah. Okay. So I think first of all, finding a market, hopefully if you've got a bit of traction, you might see in your GA or in your, um, reports in your store where you're starting to get a few customers in a, in foreign markets. So that might be a good way of trying to figure out where to go first. And I think the basics are getting the, the currency right, so charging the right currency language uh, if, if it ends up being a country that is um, a different language. And just making sure that the, the store is 
Um, oh, then shipping. Yeah. So making sure that your shipping options have got specific ones for that region that are not terrible, you know, not super expensive. And you may even decide that as part of your um, investment in that market, you will tolerate a bit of a loss on shipping, for example, just to kind of prove that the market is one that you can sell into. A little bit of proof of concept and kind of proof of concept. Validation yeah. Out there. yeah. Yeah. And then I think the next level, then you would, like I say, start optimizing by maybe having more local presence, um, which will make your operations more efficient and optimize further for those markets, perhaps by having a separate store that kind of sells into those markets. But then it's kind of just duplication by replication where you think, okay, cool. You know, we've done those kinds of things. We have this market set. Our second market's running well. You put a fulfillment center in that kind of area. You can start to optimize a little bit more. Then is it just kind of rinse and repeat for, you know, your third, your fourth, whatever next region you want to go into? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you might find that you only need, let's say like a German distribution center to be able to sell it into all the sort of Western European countries, for example. But I think you're totally right that it's just a case of finding a formula that works and a go-to-market plan. And I suppose we haven't really talked about uh, uh, marketing, um, but but that plan also would factor into this, that what did you use to build up that traction um, in each of those markets? And then, like you say, building a bit of a formula there for doing that uh, multiple times. And there's that whole kind of cultural debate there also, is how do customers like to get their marketing? Is it online? Is it TV? Is it you know direct advertising? You know Direct mail works in some locations? That's all kind of just another one of those, like you have to kind of A-B test and see what works. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and related to that is the wholesale agreements and building up word of mouth that way of having retailers in those markets, which sometimes comes first, actually. So maybe you already have the international distributors and then you're thinking, wow, okay, we have a decent um, you know, customer base in Sweden, let's say, and maybe we set up our D2C site there. Interesting, interesting. Hadn't thought about that. So once you start talking about scaling, um, we kind of walked through obviously all of the, the different things to be aware of. So we kicked around, you know, what do you need to do to get off the ground? You know, maybe taking a, a crawl, walk, run approach. What are the kind of final things to do to be kind of the fully worldwide operational is, would you advise bringing a team in house? Would you advise, you know, obviously you are probably biased being as an agency, but you know, where are some of the optimization pieces you can really optimize? What are the pieces you can optimize to make sure that this is a smooth flowing function and not something that requires so much energy day to day? So at that scale, normally you've got a, a store for each region that, that you want to sell into, and then some kind of replication between those stores. So you're not having to literally manage 10 different stores. That There's an element of um, reuse of content and configuration and so on. Um, same with deployments. So if you're making improvements to your theme, you are um, working with a technology team that's able to deploy to all those regions simultaneously and allow you to actually get some economies of scale rather than everything taking 10 times as long. Um, I also think that in terms of optimizing in those areas, you, you, at that point, you've done everything. You know, you've got the, the payments, like totally nailed for that um, payment and payment methods. Um, in each of those markets, you've got, well, taxes you need to do, whether it's optimized or not. So you've got your compliance sorted. You've got shipping in a way that is low cost and efficient. You've got your languages and translation done. You've got, uh, an, including tone of voice, and you've got customer service that can back it up as well and handle returns. And of course, all on, the, all on top of a, a bedding of data protection compliance. So 
I think it's just a case that at that point have been totally optimized in each region. And like I say, been able to offer a like-for-like -like service for what made you successful in your domestic market. So that when you look back on it from kind of a macro perspective, everything effectively is the same. You just have a little bit of details that change kind of between stores, between cultures, whatever it is, but everything looks like the same experience. The customer experience works the same way as people go through it. Yep. I don't know if I could have tied a bow better on it myself. That was pretty well done. <laughs> Last question I have for you, more of a personal question. Uh, what physical products do you subscribe to? Ah, so I subscribe to Dry Farm Wines, which is actually one of our clients, one of your clients too. And they do organic wine and they choose it for you and you get a delivery. And you can choose like, do you want it every month, every other month? So it's quite a nice thing if you don't want to have too much booze in the house or, or you do, you can sort of choose your level. And then it comes in a, a really nice presentation and they have an app as well. So you can look at the photograph a label and it will tell you, you know, this wine goes with whatever food. So I've been really enjoying that because I don't like going in the store and trying to work out like what wine to buy. It's just nice to know someone's doing that. It's just going to arrive every month and then it will go over there and then I'll be able to enjoy it. What an awesome improvement on the customer experience there, being able to kind of scan the wine that they ship you and say, hey, here's some food suggestions that you can pair with this wine. Yeah. That's something that I think is one of those unique benefits that you don't get from buying in store. Yeah, it's a really nice touch. And um, yeah, I've been really enjoying it so far. You discover all these different wines and uh, also you just don't have to think about going out to the store. It just shows up every, every month. So you don't have to even think about that. So yeah, I love it. I love it. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chase. We want to thank Alex once again for joining us. If you're interested in WeMake websites, you can head over to WeMakeWebsites.com.